You're listening to Research Inside Out, an inside look at research outside the classroom. This podcast is recorded at Lakehead University's Aurelia campus. I'm Stephanie Edwards, and today I'm going to be talking with Dr. Tim Kaiser from the Department of Anthropology. Tim is a European archaeologist who works mainly on the Mediterranean and Adriatic coast. He focuses on complex organizations, food production, and the origins of farming. Though he may not be Indiana Jones, he does have a wealth of information, knowledge, and exciting stories to share. So keep listening to hear more about Tim's exciting research, including a story about how he discovered a cave that hadn't been seen by humans in over 2,000 years. That and much more in today's podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining us again today. Today I'm here with Professor Tim Kaiser from the Department of Anthropology. Thank you for being here. My great pleasure. All right, so before we begin, can you just give us a brief rundown of research that you do? I'm an archaeologist, and my research takes place mostly in European archaeology. It's where all my fieldwork happens, at any rate. And uh, my, my principal interest in archaeology is the period of time that archaeologists consider recent prehistory, the last 15,000 years. Now, I know from being an anthropology student myself that sometimes when you tell people you're an anthropologist or an archaeologist, they kind of go, what is that? Mm. So how do you explain that to people? Well, the first thing they say is, how many dinosaur bones do you find? <laughs> and then I have to t- explain the difference between archaeology, which is the study of past humans, and paleontology, which is the study of other <clears throat> other life forms. When I'm trying to tell uh, people about anthropology as, as a whole, I tell them it's the study of humankind past and present and that it's divided into a number of different subfields, of which archaeology, the study of past and human behavior, is one. Now, what is it that started you off interested in this topic? Was there a certain moment, or someone you met, or an environment you were in? No, all, all of the above. When I was a little kid, I had the great good fortune to travel extensively. Um, my, my parents were in uh, the diplomatic corps, and I lived in a lot of different countries when I was growing up. So I think my first encounter with archaeology that I remember is looking at Roman ruins uh, outside of Vienna. And then a few years later, I encountered a medieval burial pit of Swedish knights who'd been tossed into a pit in Poland somewhere. And all this was, these were all childhood uh, formative experiences. But what really got me going was when I uh, reached uh, high school. And in high school, I had the opportunity to take a course in anthropology and archaeology that was given by one of the real greats in the field, a man named Scotty McNeish. And uh, he's the guy who, among many, many other things, discovered where in uh, the Western Hemisphere corn was first domesticated. So he was a real star in the field, and he was teaching a high school course, which was awesome. And I thought, this is for me. So subsequently I went on and I studied the sorts of things that you need to study to become an anthropologist and an archaeologist, and that means looking into lots of of other things. McNeish's example to me was something that I then thought about, where can I go and use what I've learned in a way that will somehow make an impact? And I was already familiar with southeastern Europe, a place where archaeologists have been doing lots of things for a long time, but mostly in Greece. And I thought to myself, well, I'll just move north of Greece and see what happens. The rest is prehistory. So you ended up in Croatia, is Mm -hmm. where you do most of your research. So what made you want to go there other than kind of doing something different? Uh, Well, a couple of things. Um, I started my work in that part of the world before Croatia was Croatia. It was then Yugoslavia, and I began working there in 1978. Uh, I first 
I worked for about 10 years, 12 years doing field work in what's today Serbia, the Middle Danube Basin. And the reason that I was interested in that was that at the time, in the late 70s and the 80s, archaeologists thought that agriculture, farming and food production had come to Europe by means of people coming overland from the Near East and using the Danube Valley as a major corridor. And it's in that area that the some of the first experiments in European farming took place. So that's what got me interested in, in, in that part, corner of the world. After I'd worked there for 10 years, I thought, you know, the summers here are really hot and humid. Why don't I go to a more congenial place? And so I took my research to the Adriatic coast, which is Croatia. And I've been working there since 1988. There too, you have the same sorts of problems. It's a, a, a crossroads in antiquity and in prehistory. So there are many different people many different ideas and many different things that go through that region, some of which were developed there, others were simply borrowed innovations. And if you want to look at problems of that are essential, essentially uh, about how humans organize themselves, how complex organization comes about, Adriatic Croatia seemed to be a, a wonderful place. Um, it was relatively underexplored and with a great deal of potential. And you mentioned transition to farming as well as complex organizations. Why is that something important to study about our past and what can it tell us? Well, many people would say that the single most important development that's happened to humans since humans became human was the invention of food production, the ability to create food where it hasn't been, the ability to create food surpluses that allow us then to turn those food surpluses into all sorts of other things. It frees people to do crafts. It promotes things like science. Uh, and it's not just because there's free time, it's because there's there are all these additional resources. So the basis of our life today under a state in urbanized environments, all of these things were only possible once farming began. So it is a crucial uh, turning point, and it has attracted many, many, many anthropologists and archaeologists for a long time. I'm one of those hordes. Now, are you still working on that today, or what is your more current research kind of geared towards? <clears throat> well, these days it's it's grown out of uh, out of that and returned again. For example, the site that I've been working on for quite a long time is a site that spans a long period of time. It begins with the earliest farmers, and it finishes with the arrival of the Romans uh, in that region. In between, there are many, many complicated issues that arise, and I only tackle them because the site that I'm I've been digging, has remains that pertain to those those other periods. Over the last couple of months, however, I've been thinking a lot more about the origins of farming and how that played out in the Adriatic. And so my, my current research, the stuff I'm doing yesterday, the stuff I've been doing the last week and so forth, has had to do with the kinds of challenges that would have faced farmers entering into a Mediterranean coastal environment. And so I've been looking at how or rather, what kinds of evidence we have for prehistoric seafaring, what kinds of knowledge, what kinds of technology must have been present in order for the results that we see in the ground to have ever taken place. Is there a reason why Mediterranean coastal is more unique or different than other places? Well, this particular part of the coast is quite different from the rest of the Mediterranean, or rather most of the Mediterranean. It is a coastline that is indented by many, many, many little coves, and bays. It's speckled with islands up and down it. There are in a, a approximately 1,200 kilometer long coastline, there are almost as many islands, actually a few more, I think it's like 1,250 islands that are there. So it's an archipelago. 
And there are only two serious archipelagos in all of the Mediterranean. There's the, the islands of the Aegean and the islands of the eastern Adriatic, where I now work. So I want to talk a bit more about past sites that you've worked on. You spend a lot of time in caves, which I think a lot of people probably find very interesting and fascinating when you talk about them. So what brought you to there and what are some interesting things that you've learned? The caves that I've been working on have all been in coastal Croatia. And the reason that I work have worked in them is that caves are essentially sediment traps. By that I mean stuff that goes into a cave doesn't wash out of it. Uh, it doesn't get disturbed uh, the way an open-air site does. And so when you're looking for a situation, a setting, in which there are many layers stacked on top of one another over a long period of time, a cave is a good place to look. And the reason why I was interested in finding such sites, places where you have what we call a stratigraphy, layer after layer after layer, spanning thousands of years, was that I wanted to develop an absolute chronology for the later prehistory of, of this part of the Mediterranean. And in order to get datable samples from layers whose periods were known already, a cave was a good place. You can get uh, many dates that span, well, in the case, for example, of Nakodana Cave, uh, dates that span a, a six or 7,000 year period of time. They were all uh, available right there. Within that that research, though, unexpected things do tend to happen. Nakavan is the best example. Here we had a cave which we already knew from past work would have the remains of early farmers, as well as much later stuff. And sure enough, it, it gave us the datable samples that we wanted. What we didn't know was that this cave had been a much larger place at one point in its past, and that at a particular time, the cave had been sealed by somebody's intentional action. When we broke through this sealed part, we entered into another part of the cave that had not been touched in 2,000 years. We were the first people in there ever. And what we found were the undisturbed remains of a sanctuary, a place where rituals were, were performed and observed by people during what we call the Iron Age, that is, the last few centuries BC, the time of Alexander the Great, as far up as, as Julius Caesar. So for about 300 or 400 years, this cave was used as a very special place by the indigenous people of the eastern Adriatic. Um, it was a spectacular find. What did it feel like walking into a place that you know people haven't been in in 2,000 years? What was that experience like? It's awesome. Literally awesome. Uh, not in the sense, oh, it's terrific, but it inspires awe. Going into that, into that particular cave, let me describe this to you. The part that we had already seen was a part where you could barely stand up and bang your head on the top of the cave more often than not. In the part that had been sealed up, it, there was room to stand. And it was huge. It was like entering into a, a great big ballroom. And there in the middle of it uh, was a stalagmite surrounded by pottery that had been left as offerings to the gods or goddesses or whoever. And uh, there were no other traces of recent humans. It was quite a special moment. But I have to say that the, the special, the feeling of a special moment is something that archaeologists encounter even when finding more or less ordinary objects, a, a broken axe, for example. Put, pick that up in your hand and you know that it was in somebody else's hand a long time ago and you can make it, uh, an immediate visceral connection with that past. It's, it's quite a special feeling. You mentioned finding some pottery, and I know that's another sort of interest of yours. How did you get into understanding that and understanding how important pottery can be for learning things about the past? Ceramics, things made out of fired clay, are, are things that people have been using for the last 10,000 years or so, and they tend to be quite durable. Sure, they break when you drop them, but they don't then melt 
They don't just disappear. Uh, fragments are left behind. And it turns out that pottery is useful for at least several different, to answer several different kinds of questions in archaeology. First of all, pottery is datable, so if we want to date events in the past, pottery is often a good way to do it. Secondly, pottery is a tool that, that people used to accomplish other things, and if we're trying to understand their daily lives and their not-so-daily lives, then pottery is a good way in. The reason I started studying it, however, is that when I joined a project uh, as a graduate student, the excavation had been going on for two years already, and there was nobody around to deal with the Part, the broken pottery bits that had nothing interesting about them. They weren't rims, they weren't handles, they had no decoration, they were what we call body shirts. And so as the low person on the totem pole, so to speak, I got the job. It turned out to be fascinating. Is there anything you, any challenges you faced? Yeah, sure. The kinds of challenges that I've had, first of all, they're the, the routine ones that any scholar in any field faces, and that's funding a project. But besides that, the particular challenges that I had or whether well, they come in a number of different orders. For example, when I began working in Croatia, it was still a part of Yugoslavia. Two years after I began working there, Yugoslavia broke up and war ensued. And so I was working in a war zone. Among the dangers, challenges that I faced were how do you go about working in a landscape that's landmined? How do you deal with massive refugee problems? Why should you at all try to pretend to carry out a normal life when devastation, destruction, and death and misery are all around you? The answer that I got from my colleagues was, please keep coming, because if you don't, then we will feel as if the world's forgotten about us. That was one sort of challenge. Another sort of challenge uh, has to do with how do, you, how do you figure out things about the past from material evidence that otherwise is silent? And that's a continuing challenge for me. Say you had an unlimited amount of funding in some magical world where you get lots. What would be your dream research project to embark on? Oh, the comparative ethno cuisine of Europe. I would want to study different ways of cooking and eating and so forth. But I think as an archaeologist, I'd do something else. Now, if I were, if I had unlimited money for an archaeological project, I would go back to Croatia and work around the the area where this this cave is and study the rest of the what I would call the archaeological landscape. So, for example, this cave Nakovana is in a, in a zone, let's say a 15-square-kilometer area, that contains a number of hill forts, uh, about a 100 different uh, burials under stone mounds, ancient terraces, roadways. There are boats and ships that have been sunk just off the coast, so there's an underwater component to it as well. Uh, it would keep me busy for forever. Far, far longer than I can live, that's for sure. Anthropology and archaeology isn't really portrayed in the movies like it is in real life, but have you ever had any adventures that would be worthy of maybe the big screen? Well, the discovery of the the hidden part of Nakavana would be one of those things, because it's if I can describe this with words, imagine you're going through a very, very narrow tunnel, one that is perhaps a meter wide and perhaps a meter high. Not even and the walls of this tunnel press in on you. You get to the end of it, and all of a sudden it opens up. Well, that's a big screen moment. That's one. Another might have been one of those episodes that happened during the war. I was working on a tiny island in the middle of the Adriatic, doing survey and, and excavation. And when it was time to leave, we got into a little boat, headed off towards the coast, and all of a sudden the engine conked out. 
There was no radio. The storm began to build up, and we began drifting towards the coast of Montenegro. That was a problem, because just two days before that, the police uh, of Montenegro, actually a paramilitary kind of force, had sortied out of their port and shot up a bunch of Italian fishing boats that had come too close, and we were very afraid that if we got too close, <clears throat> the same sort of thing would happen. Now, in the end, uh, nothing bad did happen, so I guess uh, if this were being turned into a movie, a, a different ending would have had to have been written, but it was close. What are you hoping to achieve in maybe, say, the next five, ten years the most with your research? Well, I'd like to get back to, uh, to finish the work at, at Nakavana Cave. Uh, one of the, my rules of thumb for archaeology is that for every week I spend digging, it takes multiple months, if not years, of analysis, and I'd really like to finish the analysis of the material from Nakavana and publish it in a big book form rather than in, in article form. And on the next island over, there just happens to be another cave pointing the same way as Nakavana with an even deeper prehistory, and I'd kind of like to go there. All right, so to wrap it up, if you could explain your research in just five words, what words would you use? Archaeologists start at the top. Great. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Research Inside Out. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss another podcast. You should also follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at Lakehead Aurelia, to stay up to date with all things Lakehead and to continue getting an inside look into the day-to-day -day happenings of our campus.